I'm Stefan Siddig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. My guest today is Preston Allen, a playwright, composer, and lyricist whose work has been seen at the New Amsterdam Theater, Lincoln Center, New York Musical Festival, Signature Theater, Musical Theater Factory, Feinstein's 54 Below, Joe's Pub, Laurie Beachman Theater, York Theater, and Second City, Chicago. Preston conceived and wrote book, music, and lyrics for We Are the Tigers, which won the LA Stage Alliance Ovation Award for Best Lyrics Composition, Never Better, and The Rage, Carry Two, an unauthorized musical parody, and many others. His play, Modern Gentleman, was also featured as part of the 2020 Pride Plays Festival. Preston is a member of the Ars Nova Playgroup, graduate of the Second City Chicago Comedy Studies Program, and an alum of the BMI Lamont Engel Musical Theater Workshop. Hi, Preston. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here on American Theater Artists Online. Oh, of course. You caught me at a great time. It's, it's a great weekend. It sure <laughs> is a great weekend. Yeah, I think uh, spirits are rising. People are happy. Um, a, a great um, weight has been lifted. So um, I'm really glad that you had some time during all the celebration and all the, you know, the good stuff going on this this weekend to talk to us. So thank you. We like to talk to leading contemporary figures in American theater. And I have been following your work. And I think that you qualify. I very much appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> so let's dive right in. So, you know, you're a playwright, composer, lyricist. You know, your work has been seen really almost everywhere in New York, um, on a lot of different theaters and a lot of different venues, also in Chicago, also in the West Coast. Um, and um, I wanted to talk to you a bit, you know, right now you're, you're, you're involved in composing, lyricist, playwright work. But were you always in that field? Was that always your, or how did you kind of get your start? Were you someone who started performing? Uh, or is this something you always wanted to do? So give us a little bit of an insight in, you know, how did you start in this profession? Yeah, the short answer is I very initially also intended to be a performer. That was my track, um, mostly through college, actually. It was paired with writing. Um, I, I very much believed I was going to be a musical theater and comedy star um, <laughs> until that wasn't quite actually what was fulfilling to me. So, yes. so I did pull myself out of that track. But my um, my dad is a playwright and musical writer and wrote for soap operas for a very long time um, during my, my very formative years and still does. So I was raised in a very theatrical household. My mom um, had done theater and she's a cantor now. So a lot of singing in my home, oh, nice. a lot of appreciation for uh, Broadway. I, you know, I didn't even know that plays were on Broadway for a really long time because my dad just wanted us to see musicals, <laughs> just wanted that to be what we were aware existed. Um, so that was, it was very celebrated in my upbringing, that theatrical lifestyle and career, uh, which I'm very uh, thankful for and very grateful for that they were so nurturing of that. And I did want to be a writer equally to anything else for my whole, my whole life, basically. Um, I was, you know, I'm the youngest of three kids. So uh, a lot of my, the, things that were on in the house was uh you know i was watching cat dog and, <laughs> um, disney channel hannah montana and also you know my, my siblings are watching sex in the city and law and order svu so i kind of was writing very macabre quirky children's stories it's quite um, a range <laughs> it was definitely i got i got a talking to in fourth grade for uh for my episode of, of law and order SVU. 
sleeve that I accidentally left in the printer um, oh. about, about maybe staying staying younger a little longer than I was trying to be. Um, but that was, yeah, that was my, my upbringing, was kind of watching a bunch of things and then trying to recreate them, trying to get into the genres that I was watching. Um, so when I was an early teenager, I was writing spec scripts for Sweet Life of Zack and Cody in Hannah, oh. Montana. That no one ever saw, but I maintain were very delightful. You were already training. <laughs> I, you were already preparing. I was. I was. That was from from a very young age. I have some very emo stories <laughs> as a youth that I was journaling. Um, and then my first, actually, my first play that we ever did was in eighth grade. I was commissioned to do an adaptation of Sammy Keys and the Hotel Thief. Uh, I'm not sure how legal that was, so my apologies. <laughs> hey, you were in eighth grade. It's okay. I was, and it was, it was, that was our official play that year at my school, and that was really fun. And then wow. in high school, I wrote, um, just for fun, I'd written a pilot of a fake Disney Channel show um, that was also meant to be a musical, and when they had an opening for a one act they needed performed um, uh, to pair with another one act for an evening, I got permission to do it, and we put together a team of friends in my high school. It was an art school, so it was already ready to do all this. Um, but we got permission and we put on a fully staged version of this 45 minute musical I'd written with um, my friend Nick Gutierrez. Um, and and we just put it on in front of the whole school and had a really, really great time. And the next year we were commissioned to write the Mystery Dinner Theater for everyone. And that kind of kickstarted my uh, passion for like putting on and semi-producing as much as I needed to live theater in order to get my work out and writing songs and collaboration. Um, and then I, I was going to go to a writing program for college because that was where my heart was starting to be at. And I had gotten into USC's film school for screenwriting. Um, but then I was cast as Alona Ritter in our performance of She Loves Me. And I got a Betty Buckley nomination for Ooh, that. Which congratulations. Was Thank you very much. It was our channel into the Jimmies um, that didn't exist at the time. But that's, mm -hmm. you know, how, how people would recognize it. And I thought I must be the greatest performer in the world and that it would drive <laughs> American theater if I did not continue my musical theater career. So I ended up going to Columbia College for a performance. Oh, um, and under that was writing, but it was not a focus of mine in college. Right. Uh, I was okay. there to do comedy at Second City and to study musical theater performance, mm -hmm. uh, which I ended up swapping out for a few different things. But that is the longer version of my No, that's my really interesting. So you grew up, where did you grow up? I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. My I was going to say, when you said the Betty Buckley Award, I was going to say, wait a minute, that sounds like Texas to me. Yeah, very <laughs> much Texas. Betty Buckley. So um, Fort Worth, Texas, wow. And so did you get to see shows at what? What is it? Casa Manana? What's what's out in Texas yes. in Fort Worth? Am that I right? Was very Casa Manana. Casa Manana paired with Bass Hall to do um, summer programs for kids. And yeah. I did uh, Joseph... Godspell and Oklahoma through their programs. Those were oh. very fun. I was child number 85, I think. But it was great. It was a really great facilitator of youth mm. theater at the time. I got a lot of experience. And uh, mm -hmm. and then, yeah, then my high school was Fourth Academy of Fine Arts, which is a, a great theater school. Um, and, you know, it grew exponentially the year after I left. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure what it is uh, now at this point, but I you know, went to school basically in a basement for high school with a bunch of kids who loved to see. Wow. So <laughs> was, it hard was it hard growing up in Fort Worth, Dallas? Or um, was it, was it, it sounds like you were in a pretty um, open environment, very creative, very artistic at school and in surrounding I, your yeah. I'm very privileged in my experience mm -hmm. because yeah. I came out as, as gay in high school. I was out as a lesbian in high school and I didn't face any, um, any, any bigotry from that really. Uh, I was, my family's very Jewish, right? mm -hmm. <laughs> about being very Jewish. My mom's a religious leader yeah. and that, you know, I only kind of got a little bit of commentary from that, you know, in, in what you'd think of as a Texas stereotype, which was not fulfilled in my experience. So I do want mm -hmm. to shout out about that. Um, yeah. I have a lot of friends from Texas, you know, still on my Facebook and mm -hmm. they've all been nothing but really supportive of my transition. Um, I know, you know, my brother is gay and had a little bit of a different experience. Um, I don't know the detail on that, but I know I'm speaking like it was utopian and it was not for me. Cool. I really did have a, a comfortable experience, but also uh, my dad's, you know, a New Yorker, right. <laughs> very into theater in New Yorker, grew up in Long Island. My mom is from Chicago, mm -hmm. you know, both very liberal cities. And I was raised in this very queer, liberal Jewish bubble in Texas. Um, so that 
was obviously a very right. formative you had a, part. You had a lot of time. support. You had a lot of support yes. at home and in school, it sounds like, which is great. And that's what's able to give you, you know, it nurtures you to be able to feel confident at such a young age to be writing plays and writing shows and performing and winning awards and all that. So kudos to you. I mean, it's still tough. And I think it's great that you did all that. So let's, uh, so then from there, you went, so you were at Second City for a while in Chicago? <laughs> Yeah, my college, Comedy College, has a joint program called the Comedy Studies Program. I did at the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure it still does. It also has a comedy major now, which it did not have nice. when I was there. I can't speak to that. But it was a joint program that was considered, that is considered a semester abroad at Second City, where all of your classes are, you take five, five or six courses through Second City, and that's it. It's five different specialized courses in comedy and scene work and comedy writing and comedy acting, um, the political comedy. Um, and that was a semester of my college experience was at Second City. Um, you know, obviously an incredible place to learn and have a lot of formative experiences in a lot of ways. Uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. That was a large part of my choice to go to Columbia College. Wow, so then you're in Chicago, you're doing that work, you're in school, and then from Chicago to New York, was it that way, or did you do did you do any stops anywhere along the way? How did you get to New York? Yeah, I graduated, and I was in both conservatories at Second City. I was in their music improv conservatory and their uh, regular improv conservatory. And... Um, I was in levels, I think, three and four of those coming out of college, and it was definitely not for me. And how much of that had to do with that I was increasingly uncomfortable with not reconciling my gender identity questions that were kind of buried, and how much of that had to do with the work not being for me. I haven't quite worked out. I think largely I just don't find a lot of comfort in, in being on stage anymore. And that's something um, that I actually was starting to do again before everything shut down. I was performing a lot more. Um, so I am curious to explore that again and how much of my discontinuation of that career would maybe feel more comfortable now. But I, um, right the day before I graduated, we put on a the culmination of a two-week workshop of Tigers, If We Are the Tigers, a musical that I had been working on uh, under my schooling through college. Um, I found out I was going to graduate a year early just by kind of clearing up credits just as fast as possible out of impatience and um, really wanted to do a show before I left. And so we basically had a month to throw up tigers if we wanted to do it. And the reception to that was so um, inspiring to me. We, you know, we only had a couple weeks to work on it. So it was right at the start of being developed, but the audience reaction was really cool and really um passionate and they were really into the show and so as I was graduating college and starting my improv uh, sketch comedy career I was really kind of stuck on well I, I want I really want to keep working on this musical mm -hmm. I really I really want to keep working I want to develop this I want to respond to what the audience was reacting to and fix what they weren't reacting to um, so I started to look into what that would be like in Chicago and what I didn't have access to here was like new works development knowledge for musicals um really the pathway seemed to be to rent a theater and do the show i just didn't have knowledge of the 29-hour structure of the showcase structure um so that was what i was being told was rent a theater and do the show which felt expensive and i wasn't sure how to deal with that and i was increasingly not clicking with second city in, in that long-term training and i called my friend who had directed um, my shows in high school who i went to high school with um my best friend raleigh and um I asked if I moved to New York, would he help me, you know, with this DIY development experience for Tigers? And he said yes. Wow. And um, together with the networks that he built and that I had built moving to New York, we put up um, two months into my moving to New York, our first reading at the Gene Frankel with money we'd kind of cobbled together and a lot of favors pulled in and, you know, a free coupon from backstage that got us auditions. <laughs> and we did our first reading yeah. and the right wow. person was in the room to continue um, the producing process of that. It, it switched hands a few times, but there was someone in that room who carried it forward and it kept getting carried forward until we got to our off-Broadway production. Um, okay. Last All right. Week. Okay. So slow down. You got, you covered a lot in a really short period of time, which is great. So I'm just trying to, 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 to envision this. So you're, you're finishing up your college, you know, work and you're in Chicago, you're putting, you're putting on this show and then suddenly you call a friend in New York and he goes, and he goes, sure, you can, I'll help you here. So literally your first experience when you get to New York is, is doing this, do it yourself, putting it on yourself, producing it with your friend, this, this off Broadway musical. 
right? Well, it would come off Broadway. Yes, it, there was a long, a long. How long did it? How long did it take from the time you arrived in New York to the time you got this show up off Broadway? Just so people understand. Yeah, that was our first presentations, both in Chicago and in New York, was 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago presentation was May, and then our first reading was November in New York, and then in February 2019. Um, the official off-Broadway production opened. Wow, so and we years, had a developmental production in 2015 in LA. Yeah, yeah. So uh, basically every <laughs> three-year halfway checkpoint to six years. Wow. Um, but six years total, yeah. Yeah, it's a labor of love. So for those that are listening in and don't know anything about the show, We Are the Tigers, tell us a brief a synopsis of what is the show about? Yeah, that show is about a high school cheerleading team that has faced some bumps in the road. They're not the best um, team. They've had some (laughs) issues. They have some teammates who are going through some things that are distracting them. Um, And the captain, new captain Riley, really wants them to have a great year. She wants to lead them into a different place. She wants it to be more inspiring for everyone. And she's holding this annual uh, sleepover. Uh, that she hopes gets everyone riled up. Unfortunately, it gets people mysteriously murdered. And so it becomes kind of a murder mystery of who is killing off these young women at their, at their sleepover. Um, they, they blame the wrong person trying to figure it out. And then the second act is them kind of finally reconciling with how they're going to get through this moment. In their lives. So, so you conceive the show, you wrote the book, the music, and the lyrics, correct? Yes. Wow, that's a that really truly is um, a lot to carry on your on your first show there uh, in terms. Of, well, we've talked; it wasn't really your first because you had some practice when you were uh, in, in high school and in college. But still, it was your first at this level. Um, so, what was that experience like? I mean, you talked a bit already about getting it off Broadway, but when the show was premiering off Broadway and running off Broadway. Um, what was that experience like for you? Were you, was it a constant, did it open? It was frozen and open and the show was up or did you constantly do rewrites or were the rewrites and things added to it? If anything was before you opened, how did that, for those listening in, how did that process work? There's been extreme rewrites from Tiger. Mm-hmm. And the the uh, container has been the same, but in terms of its growth, yeah, it's changed a lot from its uh, 2013 years. Um, for the off-Broadway production, basically from deciding to do the show off-Broadway uh, in October the year before, we had, you know, four months, whatever that is, to, to work on it. And so that development process, which was, you know, much more high stakes, did include writing three new songs and kind of addressing some of the show's kind of long-term problems that we had put off right. um, out of not needing to address them in that moment. So that was kind of the marathon editing session where it was like, okay, it's now or never. So, you know, personally, these three songs could be better, I think, and I have to do that now. <laughs> um, right. So that was a large part of it. Also, um, I had had top surgery a um, Day, weeks before rehearsal started. Oh, so we wow. knew I would kind of be out of commission right. for, um, yeah. for new stuff for a little bit. So it was a very kind of, it was a very fast paced process. Um, very, very supported by the people on my team. I worked with um, Patrick Sulkin and Michael Bello as music director and director. Um, Patrick had been the, the music director for much of the show's history and then was music supervisor mm-hmm. uh, for the off-Broadway. And so I had a very close communication with with those collaborators. Um, So they were, that's something that is a huge part of my career is the people I work with are very valuable to the process and to the, to the show building. And I always want to honor those collaborations. Um, So yeah, that, that was the, the moment of reckoning for the show was the off Broadway. But um, throughout that, it was basically a lot of what, what is this piece? And I would get something different from it every time we did a workshop or every time we did like LA, a, a performance of it in terms of balancing that it is kind of a campy horror piece, but also balancing that um, the characters are going through uh, a, a slightly to, to very realistic teen drama aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So the whole show's development and process is usually very contingent on balancing those elements and trying to create a, um, a comfortable tone that honors that kind of teen horror that we're very used to um, in film and TV and trying to figure out how to translate that into a musical space, which can be really complicated. Sure. Um, a lot of horror musicals that we see are campy. And so I think that's what a lot of people expect. And so it's always been a fun challenge to bring that into a space where the characters are realistically dealing with heightened. Yeah. And how, so I know that the show won an ovation award, which is an LA theater award. How did it get to LA? Was it before New York or after? 
that was before New York. That was oh, in wow. 2015. Okay. That was our um, developmental production to kind of see what it was like on its feet. We had a great team there. We had a great cast of people who've become great friends. Um, that was, yeah, that was our, we took, we were all very young. <laughs> Thinking about it now, we were still young. We were all very young to, to do that. And we took this kind of leap and rented the Hudson Backstage Theater with wow. our, our producer and our team. Yeah. And, um, just dove into that. It was once again, you know, kind of a, another DIY, but on a very public level, um, and had a, had a very formative experience. It's very challenging to say that that wasn't challenging would be incorrect to honor the reality of that experience. Um, you know, also it was before I had transitioned, and my experience working on the show um, post transition has been much healthier. Um, sure, that must have been a really difficult time for you. I mean, all that going on at the same time. But so, I mean, all of us who, those of us who love musical theater and know, know musicals know that, uh, as Jerry Herman used to say, if you want a good musical, it's you've got to take it on the road first. You've got to take it out of town first and fix it before it comes into New York. And so it sounds like that's what you did in LA. You had an mm-hmm. experiment with it in LA and then you brought it to New York and then refined it you know, people don't know how much work it takes. It's a crucible. I mean, how much you are putting into these shows. Um, it is not, and I'm glad that you talked about the, this this um, period of six years, really, of gestation of the show, because it is people who go and see the show don't always understand that. Uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, you want it to look like it was seamless and very easy <laughs> right. to write. And behind it, yeah, these years and years of development. I have some shows that have had um, similar years of development and not come to fruition, which is really hard to work through. But, you know, maybe some are 10 or 11 years, 12 years, 15 years. Right. <laughs> we'll well, see. Yeah, that's the thing you've learned from this process, I'm sure, is that 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 things take time and that some things also have to hit the right sweet spot of when it's right for the audience too, right? You know, cause sometimes shows don't hit with an audience, but they're great shows. And then you wait 10 years later and suddenly the audience loves it. And so you're kind of like, wait a minute, what happened? You know, so, I mean, that happens too. So you have a lot in, you know, and you've written uh, a few of the, I mean, several of these now. Um, and um, I think, you know, some of the titles, The Rage, Carrie 2, an unauthorized musical parody. You know, you mentioned your love for, for uh, teen and horror musical styles. I mean, how, how did that come about? Carrie 2, that's, that's a great idea, first of all. Uh, I love the Carrie universe. Yeah. Um, I just am, I'm very fascinated by the evolution of the storytelling. I'm very fascinated with it as, you know, just a, a horror piece. I'm very fascinated with its complicated evolution in the mm-hmm. theater world. Yes. Um, I was joking with a friend uh, one day that I wish I'd written the musical Carrie. I do think I would be very good for it. <laughs> I was like, I think you would I'm have been great. Right. And, you know, you should talk to Betty Buckley, do a full circle, you know, with Betty uh, Buckley. One day, She's your fellow she Texan. Come on. Yeah, she's welcome to rage Carrie too any time. Um, <laughs> and while I cannot rewrite Carrie, although it is my dream now to develop it um, as an MCC style play, but um, mm. while I can't do it as a musical. That ship has sailed. I was like, well, nothing's stopping me from writing a parody musical of the Rage Carrie too, which does exist, which is a film. And um, and I went home and I I wrote the first draft of that within a week. I I don't always work that fast, but it burst out of me. I'm extremely proud of it. Awesome. Um, we've done it four years in a row. This is the first year we've not done it. Um, 2016, 17, 18. Yeah, four years in a row. And this is the first year we haven't. We just, I just well, didn't have the energy to quarantine put that together. No, for sure. um, but yeah, it's just, it's a, a parody that is filled with love for that content. That's my favorite kind of show to write, honestly, is a parody where the characters are taking it seriously, but you're allowed to be very broad <laughs> you're allowed to pass judgment on the um on the property and, pa- and make fun of it a little with love um so i think carrie too does all of those things and so it is it is one of my my favorite pieces of mine that i love revisiting that i'm very happy i i wrote and i think this piece and we are the tigers would be such a great they're, they're so great for for um college they're so great for yeah. You know, people to, to explore that are younger for younger. You're writing material for younger people and younger um, female characters, which, you know, I, I think there isn't a lot of great material uh, for um, females, period, in musical theater. There's sort of, you know, there's a bunch of guys in a show and then there's like two women, you know. And so, I mean, I think the more you, the, it's really great that you're writing these kind of shows and in a very um, interesting and original niche that not a lot of people are writing in that niche. So I think it's good. 
I'm glad to hear about you doing that. So tell me, is there a particular project? So we've talked now about um, Where Are the Tigers, which had an off-Broadway run, which I, I mean, a successful off-Broadway run, I would say. Uh, and then The Rage Carry 2. But are there other um, projects or two that you've done that you, you know, give us an example of something that really exemplifies what you bring to the table and what was special about you to those projects? Is there another one you want to talk about? Yeah, there's a few that I've worked on. I'm thinking what I worked on this year because those are the projects that, you know, even in the hardest times, I was like, I have to work on these. Um, one of them is Agent 355, which I care very deeply about. I have an extraordinary team on that show. Um, my co-writer, Jessica Kakoska, is co-book and dramaturg on that. Very integral part of that team. I can't not mention her. Um, uh, that is a show about an unidentified female spy in the American Revolution who's associated with the Culper Ring. This is all true. Um, and that show is performed, that story is performed through a, um, a rock band in which our language has changed throughout the years. Now we're just a rock band where there are no cisgender men. Um, <laughs> that's the cast, uh, sans cis men, um, who are exploring who this woman might have been, the different women who were connected to the Culper Ring, um, and how each one of them might have been the one who's referred to as Agent 355 or as 355 in this letter, mm. um, the myth started from. And that is fully a rock concert. It's a rock concert with with pop elements. Each character kind of has a different contemporary sound. Um, and it's just been so fun. We did a concert at LPR. We did um, a workshop with Chautauqua, which is an incredible institution to mm. develop at. And then this year we, were, we did a, an online workshop with New York Stage and Film, our team on that. Um, and... And yeah, that's been that's been so fun because it is it is a concert. It's, we know it's possible to put those up without a, a massive budget, so we know it's possible to get it performed, which is very helpful. Um, and the group, the room in that is always really, really warm. It's an actor musician piece. Everyone's really just brilliant people with incredible insight and talent. Um, it's been a joy to work on that one. So, what attracted you to that subject matter? So, about the agent. Um, I mean, that's really interesting. Are you are you a history buff? Oh, no, I really wanted to see what, you know, historical musical I might write in the time, in the time of Hamilton. Yeah. And I was looking to different stories. Um, and I knew if I was to do a genre, it would be pop rock because that is my home base. Um, and I, you know, I, I came across Agent 355, who's a woman who no one knows who she is. So at first it was this, you know, kind of comical mystery, you know, in my mind of, well, how do we tell a story of, of someone no one knows? And what it became was, well, actually, we get to tell six different stories of six women um, and the realities that they may have been experiencing, that they definitely were and then also may have been experiencing um, during this time. So it was actually, actually unlocked a lot of really cool storytelling that I never expected from that property. It was kind of laughing, at, you know, doing a mystery musical about history. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, became one of the more exciting, informative pieces that I've worked on. And I'm, I'm really happy with that score and that team. Wow. Um, so you just yeah. mentioned that you like to work in the pop rock um, musical genre. But, you know, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about your music and your musical influ influences. Because I was listening to a lot of your uh, music, you know, prior to this interview. I was listening to a lot of the We Are the Tigers on your on your website. And I know it's available as well now, right, on iTunes? It is on all streaming, you can find all, it anywhere. All places where music is sold. That's what we're supposed to. So, yes, absolutely. So, so We Are the Tigers. And I was really listening to that heavily and, and a clips of some of your other shows, including this uh, Agent 355 you were just talking about. One of the things that struck me is that you, you call it pop rock. I, I got kind of like a bit of a new wave punk go-go's kind of feel. Thank you. Are they your influence? Or what are some of your musical influences? You know, I, I mean, I loved Head Over Heels. So thank you for Go-Go's. Head Over Heels is my lifeblood in that year. Um, I listened to, I listened to a lot of musicals growing up. That was kind of all I listened to in my early childhood through middle school. And then in high school, I got into a very Green Day-oriented space. Uh, Green Day, Fall Out Boy, mm. uh, and My Chemical Romance became kind of the, oh. the groundwork yeah. <laughs> for, for my listening. And then also Regina Spector uh -huh. is... You know, my ride or die, I have a very large tattoo in her honor. Um, so I went into this space of, yeah, contemporary pop punk song, singer, songwriter, kind of emo scented music. Um, and I still, I still listen to musicals. I still, I really appreciate, um, I think I'd gotten 
stressed out by it, you know, working in it and being disappointed in it as anyone who works in it can be. Um, but then actually over this last week, I've been revisiting all my favorite classics on, you know, on Amazon and on Broadway HD, and I'm just so overwhelmed by the power that a good musical has. So I don't want to discredit musical theater. No, but yeah, a lot of my influences are um, Pink. I listen to Pink a lot to write Tigers, um, mm-hmm. Sarah Bareilles. I just, I think there's so much honesty in, um, in singer-songwriter work and in, in the work of, of bands that are telling their own perspective that we don't necessarily always see in musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That I that sometimes when you do see it, those are the best musicals, and sometimes you see someone who's writing a musical, and it lacks that kind of um, intenseness and personality that I that I do think is very present. in Delta Ray is one of my favorite bands, um, and so yeah, so that's kind of what I connect to most. And and like I said, the convergence of of those two things of personality and intensity and passion and musical theater storytelling is um, is epic to me. That's my favorite pocket to to try to place myself in when I write. Yeah, because I was thinking, uh, you know, I was watching a couple of weeks ago a documentary on the Go-Go's that's out on, on, I don't know if it's Amazon or Netflix or one of those streaming things that we're all watching now because what else can we do? Uh, but, um, and I was just struck by by how, you know, and what was so interesting about the Go-Go's was that they were a truly female rock band. Like yes. like you said, there were no cis men involved and the manager was female, everyone was female energy. And yet they had such a rockin', you know, punk new wave feel. And I got that from your um, from your music. And I thought that was so interesting, you know, and, and I guess you talked about being really obsessed with Carrie and all its forms. And you know, the musical Carrie has also that pop rock feel, even though it was written by, you know, the, the two men, Dean Pitchford and, and Gore, right? Um, but um, but uh, it's it's got sort of some of that uh, female teen angst in it that is appropriate for, for that topic, right? And, and you I capture think, that so well. I think people who are the rage of being you know, crushed by inequality and patriarchy, um, no matter your identity, if, if you're not, you know, a white cis man in many ways, a straight white cis man, um, you know, that rage manifests in a very punk, very punk yeah, rock way absolutely. when you're musicalizing it. And especially that's why I write for teenagers is, um, you know, you're going through so much that it, it sings really easily. Oh, uh, it doesn't feel far-fetched that, uh, that youth expresses itself, the angst of youth expresses itself in that way. Absolutely. And so now I've read that you have written a play called Modern Gentleman that was recently featured as part of the 2020 Pride Plays Festival. So a play, not a musical. So was this your first time venturing uh, at this level uh, with just a play with no music or or what? Or how, how, how was that experience? That was, that was my second play that I'd ever written. And these plays lived on my computer. I have two plays um, at that time, three mm-hmm. years ago. Um, and that was something I started writing very early on in my transition and kind of would put away as I... Um, I had my own experiences. It's not about me, but it is shaded by what I go through. So the growth for that has been great. And this year was a, a great year to perform that because I do feel for, <laughs> um, formed enough in myself to present it now. Sure. Um, but that, that's a play um, about a trans man who's engaged to a woman who considers herself a lesbian and she ends their relationship, um, mm. you know, wanting to continue to explore the identity with which she is familiar and envisioned her life as a lesbian um, and not married to a man and how that conversation kind of unfolds and the complication of labels and dating and, um, you know, your, how your formative experiences and how labels you claim as a, as a younger person or uh, earlier in life feel very, very important to find community, but then may shift and how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of kind of complicated conversation in that. Um, and then of course, that's kind of the starting point of the play and he starts dating again for the first time as a as an out trans man and so there's a lot of different things going on a lot of different uh, relationships and conversations um nothing too con- confrontational i like to write in a space where you know people are heard and listened to and then a point of view that i think is the respectful one that should be um heard the most kind of wins <laughs> the respectful battle um but that yeah that was my first play that my heart is very rooted in and i um applied to the Ars Nova play group with that play and was very lucky to get in. Um, so I've spent the last two years with Ars Nova developing um, 
new works. And so now I have a, a number of plays that I am excited to hopefully continue to develop that I'm hopefully going to do a reading of in the next month of, of another one of mine. Um, but that's also been really, uh, play work has been really important to me, not just because the storytelling capacities are different than in musical theater and the tonal uh, differences allow for different types of storytelling, but my voice has been changing the last three years and I sing with my voice. And so to take a break from that <laughs> and still be able to tell stories while also kind of not tiring out my little instrument all the time um, was something that was very much a part of my plan. So I'm very yeah. glad that ours let me, let me into a <laughs> kind of take that musical break and focus on this kind of storytelling. Wow. And, you know, as I'm listening to you um, describe some of these experiences of working on this play versus a musical and versus composing music, um, I'm really racking my brain to think about if I've ever heard of a person in musical theater or theater who does all of the things that you do well. Because I think of someone like Harvey Firestein or Terrence McNally or Chiara Alegria Hudes, who are writers who write books for musicals, but also write plays. Uh, so I can see that parallel, but none of them compose music as well. So, I mean, oh, you are uniquely oh, positioned to really tell a lot of different stories. I'm gonna ruminate now on who else does that. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I have been, trust me, I love musical theater. Wow. I have been racking my brain because it's either, they must be really different sides of the brain or different parts. You know, I think the idea of, I think what a composer does is often very different than what a writer or a book writer does. But, you know, someone like Sondheim obviously is very good at both, but he doesn't, you know, well, he wrote a play, a mystery. I forget the name of the play, but he wrote a play to a murder mystery play one time. So, I mean, it's it's not unheard of, but it's it's a rare gift, Preston. Well, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, like I said, a lot of it is, especially musically, collaboration of arrangers and orchestrators. <laughs> well, I course. do nothing is done alone. Um, but I do. What I love about the two different sides of it is they're okay. so polar opposite in how you express yourself that you really get to explore the many facets of like the ways in which human emotion takes shape and mm -hmm. um, the journeys someone may take for example in a musical when you know a musical is about expressing your innermost desires it's about breaking into song and saying what you would be afraid to say or what you're afraid to feel or what you're excited to feel those those deeper emotions that um, express themselves so vibrantly and so largely and then in plays you, you can't do that <laughs> so you either have to express yourself honestly um, or or find ways around what you're what you really want to say um it's 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 more hard to be more honest and more open in playwriting it's more hard it's more difficult to um have your characters communicate clearly which is very true to life mm. um so i i really enjoy you know is when i start a project is this something where i need the characters to kind of burst into how they feel or is this one where everything is sitting a little more challenging <laughs> not to say that musicals can't be challenging i think they're extraordinary when they are um but some stories just don't have that song power yeah and it's a journey and i enjoy the rubik's cube of of that <laughs> right not not everything is a musical and not everything is a play you have to and it sounds like you're already making those distinctions as you're working you're going okay this would be a good musical eh, this is more of a play because of the characters or the needs of, of what the piece requires but the good thing is that you have all the tools because you're used to doing all of those things so you're able to pick your tool pick your implement pick your the, co the colors and paint that you want to use for the different subjects depending on what it is right and that's what's so cool um was it the um ken mendelbaum's book not since carrie since we're talking about carrie about all the musicals that went that flopped one of the things that ken mendelbaum says in his book is not everything needs to be a musical <laughs> and that's a lot of the flops have been when they've tried to musicalize things that just don't work as musicals. So knowing that and having the ear to, to, to see what should be and what shouldn't be a musical is a good thing to have. So that's fascinating. So look, you're an alum of both Second City in a way. You've worked with Second City. You've worked with BMI, also Musical Theater Workshop. So these are both pretty <laughs> legendary groups, right? People know about them. You know, uh, for those yeah. of you who don't know, you know, the BMI Musical Theater Workshop is well known among theater people for being a, a, a breeding ground for a lot of people who end up writing musicals. So you, you're, you're, you're alum of those. Um, can you talk a bit about your experiences there and what did you learn? Yeah, I uh, wouldn't take back a moment, even when they were very challenging. Um, 
they're, they're different in the ways in which they were challenging. I think that um, one experience that I did have throughout, not with all my teachers, but throughout, was, um, you know, that kind of do or die attitude about theater. You know, you've got to put your whole heart on about a cry during a scene or you didn't do a good stuff like that um i did have some experiences with that kind of brutal theater training that i don't i i didn't respond well to it wasn't great for my my mental health and the longevity of taking care of my brain space to be able to do this work Mm -hmm. um there's a i think there's a lot of programs in which shame becomes part of the training and i would love to talk about that more and and dismantle that in my work so i try to bring that'll be a whole other episode (laughs) yes that is that is um but that, you know, that was very um, a large part of, of working with these more prestigious, not all my teachers, I had some really wonderful teachers, and I had a couple who uh, pushed things a little far. So I did have some recovery to do after <laughs> after my experience with Second City. Um, you know, I, yeah. I had to work through, um, you know, the pressure I put on myself to succeed in this legendary space was not necessarily very helpful. Sure, um, tough. And so... And so later, so now, after having worked through kind of the emotional aspect of recovering from that, um, I got great advice from one of my instructors, which is that you have to be, you're not, a, you're not, you have to be prepared to fail. And I was too scared of failure to achieve uh, honest work. And that took a long time to work through. I'm very grateful for that advice. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, there was stuff that was so positive and stuff that I would have addressed differently that now kind of in the last couple of years, I've been able to actually really draw from that education, mm, um, which yeah. has been great because I walked out of it a little frustrated and, um, and now I, I can mine kind of in my, in my more knowledgeable age, um, sure. what yeah. I actually really needed out of it. Sometimes um, it takes some time and some distance from it to be able to, to get the most out of it. And it's extreme. You show up at 19 years old in this famous space and you want to be perfect. That's crazy. And when you're not, um, you know, and when you're not, when you're also in, in a place where the, you know, some of the teachers are like, come on, like get with it. Right. <laughs> it can be really challenging. And that's, yeah. you know, that was tough to work through. BMI is a different experience for me. Um, I was only a lyricist in BMI, so I wasn't writing my own music. I was working with very talented composers, but I really do like to write, <laughs> to write my own music. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, you know, a learning experience. Um, BMI is, is a very valuable education and we, um, disagree on some of the tenets of theater writing. They're very open about that. They're very classic. They love a perfect rhyme. They love a perfect scan. And as I've mentioned, I come from a a very, I love my pop world. I love what I call a Rihanna rhyme where you're like, how did she put these two words together? (laughs) Um, I I love, I think that's fun. I think that opens up the world more. I understand a lot of people don't like that. So I was very by the book. Um, in BMI and writing, you know, very much within the rules they wanted. And I would go home and write, you know, much more (laughs) experimental pop rock works. And a lot of my favorite songs came out of of that period personally for me, because I was able to kind of burst into what I wanted to be writing a little bit more while also, you know, taking into account the craft and um, the way in which my training for BMI shows up in my work a lot is um, traditional structure is really, really helpful for parody. It is much easier to communicate with an audience when you're starting from a place that they recognize and comedy structure is really effective when it's more traditional and when the rhyming and scanning is perfect. So I appreciate it from that perspective, but you know, they say at the beginning, we're teaching you what we're teaching you so that you can choose to, you know, regard it or disregard it. Um, and they're very open about that. And, um, and that was where, yeah, that was very much the experience I had is I went, I'm going to disregard a lot of this, but I understand why you're teaching. <laughs> well, I think it's smart, though, to have that background. If you think about someone like Sondheim, who studied with Oscar Hammerstein, right? They're totally different. Yeah. There couldn't be two lyricists com- more completely different than Oscar Hammerstein II and Stephen Sondheim. And yet he learned everything from Oscar Hammerstein and then proceeded to do everything completely differently. Right, and that I think is great because what that's exactly what you just described—that you could take all this classical training and take all this stuff and go, okay, I get it, I get it. Yes, fine, I can write in this, and also working as a lyricist with other composers, as uncomfortable or as difficult as that might seem, because you want to write your own music, maybe it's also good experience, right? So you got that as well. So sounds like it served you well, both of those experiences, as traumatizing or as difficult as parts of them may have been. It sounds like they helped you in the long run. I never would have not done them, but also like I wish I had different mental health tools um, to kind of work myself through the process of critique and rejection at a young age. For sure, that's Um, so difficult. Yeah, yeah, I'm like always like I would absolutely pair like 
counseling with, with a theater program. <laughs> As <laughs> like part of your coursework. <laughs> As part of your coursework, you'll, you'll be assigned a full-time therapist. Uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I would love that. Um, so let's talk a bit about, um, let's shift a bit gears here. It's kind of what you've been addressing a little bit throughout the interview, but I really wanted to dive in now because we're almost, I mean, I, before we end, we're, we don't have a lot of time left, and I want to really address this because it's important to me. Um, and I know it's important to you, um, which is the issue of representation in musical theater or theater in general. You know, as a trans man, I mean, what do you think you bring that's unique? I mean, obviously, I think the question answers itself, but but do you think things, you know, what is your view? And you've answered some of that already in, in the, the previous question, so I think that's great. But do you think things have improved in terms of representation for trans folk in the theater? Because I'm watching a lot of TV, a lot of Netflix, a lot of, and I'm seeing trans characters on the small screen and even yeah. a few on the large screen. I'm not, can't say I've seen a whole lot on stage. Yeah, trans rep in theater is really complicated because you're right. Uh, film and television are catching up a lot more. I would recommend anyone watch Disclosure on Netflix. It's an incredible documentary about um, the evolution of trans representation and how it led to a lot of um, negative perceptions of the community that the media kind of steered. Mm. Um, so I watched that. Now, is that, I forget where it's on. Is it on, is it on Hulu? Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. Netflix. Netflix is very supportive of the trans community. I appreciate great. it. Yeah. So dis um, disclosure on Netflix. Yes. I remember seeing yeah. that a couple of, couple of months ago. For me, it works in two ways, which is being trans is an incredibly important part of my identity that I'm very proud of and that I take great care of um, and demand respect for, but also that it is a very small part of my life. Right. Um, in reality, it's a very, it does not affect other people in my life. It, mm -hmm. You know, if the world wasn't making it difficult, it wouldn't affect me, you know, more than a shot every week. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, the world makes that tougher. Um, so yeah. when I write the ways in which, you know, I, I hope that people... I don't come into it with any profound anything, but the representation is is so little. And there's t there's I'll get there's tons of of trans artists and playwrights on on the scene, um, but mainstream the representation is so little that to one degree when I'm doing something like Tigers or like my fake Disney Channel <laughs> movie that I wrote um, the last few years or something that has nothing to do with trans mm -hmm. stuff. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure as much as I can. I want to include trans actors in those processes. I want to put. Uh, trans people on screens and stage and just demonstrate that we are we exist, we're around, um, it's not important, we're living our, our lives. Um, you know, so even if I'm writing something that's not, um, has nothing to do with, with that, it's in front of an audience and maybe mm -hmm. they've never encountered any, any work or any experience with another trans person and um, this is a moment where they get to spend some time with me and I hope that they maybe it unravels some bias or some previous misconceptions. Um, and then also I do, I do focus heavily on trans stories. So mm -hmm. the other side of that is, yes, I want to put very, <laughs> the experience of being trans in different contexts um, through different characters' eyes on stage and hopefully an audience member will come in. And I've, I've seen this happen with Modern Gentlemen, which I'm very happy with um, mm -hmm. and thankful for. Be like, I'm not trans. I never thought I would relate to a trans person and yet I saw myself in several of, of these interactions and experiences um, in a way I never thought I would and now I, I empathize with this experience a little bit more and um, and I, I want to keep doing that I have you know a play that focuses on a trans youth trying to find safety after being kicked out of their home mm. um, I hope that you know hope gets done one day and, and kids are able to find that if they need those resources or parents are able to see that even if they stumble upon it and empathize with this experience that they've never witnessed before um but also um there's so many playwrights and musical theater writers and performers that are are trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming who are extraordinary and in the new musical theater scene i've seen so many incredible stories like Interstate uh, and Wonder mm. Boy are, are stories by um, by trans writers um, that that have incredible, exciting stories that are diverse and that are really fun um, and tragic and exciting um, that show all shades of the community that live under the surface of mainstream musical theater. And then we have mainstream musical theater, which is not 
where TV and film is, um, mm. which is really difficult. Tootsie has been a really difficult thing to work through because there were a lot of complaints that the trans community very validly raised yeah. um, to the point where they ended up taking one of their pieces of merchandise down, which I appreciate, but they, ap- they apologized for it privately to people, mm-hmm. which I less appreciate. But, um, you know, we, we, raised, we wanted to have a discussion about that. A lot of people in the community, I don't speak for everyone, but I do know a lot of people in the community tried to engage with that team about mm. the ways in which some of the themes in Tootsie are really dangerous to tour around the country, especially um, mm. because if you are, uh, the, there's a lot of ignorance about the trans community that can be seen in the way that this musical tells the story. Right. Um, it's not true, but you can see it in the way the musical tells the story if that's what you want to. And a lot of people try to address it, that. And it leaves it open, right? It leaves it open. It leaves a lot of things unanswered or a lot of questionable. It, stuff in there it you know, does. that's the thing so i can think of i'm as you're talking i'm thinking about mainstream musicals and any trans characters or trans actors and all i can think of is the musical you've already talked about which was head over heels uh the character uh that peppermint plays um in the musical um who plays sort of a, a you know a non-gender you know a gender fluid character that yes, peppermint extraordinary yeah and so Um, that is the only one i can think of i I can't think of others and you've mentioned a few but they're not mainstream broadway shows no we had um we had straight white men which had oh my i'm so devastated that i'm blanking on their name i know ty defoe was one of the people in charge Mm -hmm. um and then i'm trying to like that was a that was a play a play or a musical it was a play that second stage um, Kate game. Bornstein, of course. Tide Phone, uh, Kate Bornstein were, okay. um, that was a play. Yeah. Um, they were they were on it very briefly. I wish it had given them more space and more stage time. Sure. That was <laughs> something I, I actually addressed with uh, some someone on the team of that show. Um, and we had Alexandra Billings has been in two Broadway shows. Yes. She, um, one of the characters Wicked. Was, was Wicked. Um, I wish I could have seen her. Oh my God. Um, you imagine? And, and then another a play where she was playing a character who who was trans um and then we have there's definitely a little more southern comfort and charm who have um mm. trans characters and trans stories um that were off broadway and then we have jagged little pill which um is complicated and i saw ezra menace on as joe and ezra menace um identifies as non-binary i'm i'm very sure so that's that. not so much is that one's but was that the character or was that the actor, just by the acting, the casting choice? When Ezra went on as that role, mm-hmm. uh, I believe that that character shared an identity with with them. Uh-huh. I don't want to speak for them. But no, that no, was sure, sure. But it felt like that. That. I know a lot yeah. of trans people went to that performance. Trans yeah, Twitter we all showed up to that performance. And mm-hmm. it was the first time seeing someone in a trans masculine space. Yes. Um, playing a romantic lead and it was in- incredible and extraordinary Ezra is not the person who is the primary of that role um but that role's had a complicated journey and I can't speak to it and it's it's sure. a little um it, there's a lot of mystery about it a lot of questions <laughs> I will have but what I want to focus on is the positive yes. of seeing a performer play a, a teen who's going through a lot of issues I've seen for years and years. Mm, yeah. on so much content I've seen, so much teen angst, musicals, <laughs> and yet. But to see a, someone in a trans space um, with a trans identity playing that role was extremely important. Um, to me, it was really special to see that and to so many people who showed up. Um, and and I hope that Ezra goes, goes on more and, and continues to have a really wonderful career just because they're incredibly they're incredibly talented and um we need to see more trans people in love and and struggling and Mm -hmm. overjoyed and finding peace and comfort and i was really glad i got to see that that was the last show i saw before broadway shut down um so i went out with a bang you know i think it was Um, mine too i was there in december um but i think it was the last one i saw too before um, the pandemic, but so it sounds like the doors have been open on Broadway, at least yes. a little bit, very small inroads. So maybe it's your turn, Preston. Maybe, maybe that's what we're counting on you to write a, a musical uh, <laughs> that deals with no pressure, uh, that deals with, with these kind of issues and, and who better. I mean, we're always talking about, you know, if we want representation, we need people in the room who are of that background. Because otherwise, well, if, if Dan and Melissa Lee are more likely to. They write a lot of musicals. They mm-hmm. wrote Interstate. They wrote Misstep. That yeah. have 
that are musicals that have trans stories. Yeah. And I'm, I think that we'll be seeing their work more mainstream in a musical world before mine, just because my work has been much more play focused. Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of stuff brewing and the door is in a complicated place. I think there are a lot of people who are very nervous to engage with the trans community for marketing reasons and for mainstream marketing reasons. Mm. And I think they need to get over that. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like we're at a, we're at a crossroads and I feel like, it's it, if if not in the theater, then where? I feel like the theater should be the most embracing and open uh, for those of us that are a little bit different, right? Because um, it's just it, it's it's heartbreaking, really. Uh, we should be a safe space for yeah. artists of all kinds. When we reconcile with that, it'll be incredibly powerful. But right now, there is this mainstream divide because so much hinges on. Broadway and making money for Broadway and appealing yeah. to the mainstream and this audience that's flying in for Broadway. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to challenge them. I mm-hmm. think that headway will be made massively when we challenge those audiences to to see experiences that they're not used to. I think that's why Fun Home was so powerful is people didn't expect to see themselves in that story in so many different ways. And it helped them connect to difficult experiences they'd had, but also a community that they didn't understand maybe previously. I'm really glad you brought up Fun Home because that was a show that completely blew me away and I didn't know it, it was the, the, the mastery was as I was laughing in one moment and the next moment I was bawling uh, oh it's genius yes. uh, they put together and and you know and representation was was a little broader there which was good so there's a little bit more than just you know it wasn't really a, about the the gay dad at all it was really about um the daughter uh, and and her you know her whole the way she felt but I mean anyway so tell me a little bit I mean we've talked a little bit about that and I'm glad that, that you went there and thanks for really giving a little bit of your view on on the the scene and what's going on right now because you are there you're in you're in the heart of it and you are writing whether it's plays or musicals or composing music uh, or writing lyrics you are in the heart of what's happening so I'll be looking forward to whatever it is that you're putting out next um uh, if people so do you have any exciting online projects that you want to talk about that are coming up or any as we wrap up here anything coming up live in 2021 or anything that you're doing online some people move some of their stuff online um and if people want to know about it how can they reach you or follow you on social media Yes, I need to do better at my website. That's not how to find things about me. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter are both Preston Max Allen at Preston Max Allen. I'm very vocal on both of those. I'm very open about my experiences and my work and my announcements. Um, so that's where those things will be caught up. Um, I am not doing anything live in the near future. I actually relocated out of New York for a little bit to have more space to work in Chicago. Sure, um, sure. So I'm in Chicago right now uh, in my little office with my piano, which I'm very happy to have. I couldn't have, couldn't have the space in New York unfortunately couldn't afford it um, yeah, I am trying to get into the zoom the magical world of, of zoom development that also uh, hopefully people will uh, not burn out I think we have to you know ebb and flow with that I've heard of zoom burnout but I, I hope we continue to give each other space to, <laughs> to do my work there. that's smart yeah um, and if people so if people want to download We Are the Tigers, it's a, we already said this, but I want to say it again. It is available anywhere you want to purchase music. Um, yes. So We Are the Tigers. You can get the full um, cast recording, which you guys did, I assume, off-Broadway. Is this a recording of the yeah. off-Broadway? Yeah, the yeah. off-Broadway cast. What and about, then we are keeping... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What else do you have that people can... We are committing to video. Um, last year, my friend Edward Precht and I, um, music directed by Madeline Smith directed by Rachel Flynn and produced by Maxwell Haddad, um, what is called, um, oh, and Richard Allen, <laughs> produced by Richard Allen as well, what is called um, a very Netflix Christmas musical now streaming live, which is a loving parody of all the Netflix Christmas movies um, starring, <laughs> and the, the musical is about Vanessa Hudgens, who's a, a you know an all-business, no-nonsense woman who learns to embrace the magic of Christmas um, against the odds, and that has been so fun to work on. It's a very fast and loose parody uh with an original storyline um that is very fun edward is an incredibly brilliant playwright with a very uh, unexpected and dark sense of humor who's so fun to work with we write together a lot now and um and i hope people tune into that it's our it's our contribution to the christmas musical canon you know we all need more jews writing christmas music absolutely and they write the best summer. irving berlin no so what what where can people find this we are going to uh, pre-film that. You will not have to watch that live. Uh, okay. You can tune in for that at your own pace this uh, in 
December, before Christmas. We don't have a specific date yet. Sure, but, sure, um, but it's I coming. I will update on my socials. Okay, um, it's yeah. a really fun project. I'm really happy with it. I'm excited we're going to, you know, introduce it to people in some form or fashion. Well, Preston, this has been such a fascinating conversation for me. I really love talking to you and uh, so much so that we've gone way over time and I don't care. Uh, so I think it's great. I completely lost track of time, but thank you. And it's been so wonderful talking to you and thank you for being on American Theatre Artists Online. And we will be following uh, your career and hoping to see more of what you come up with um, as we head into a hopefully wonderful new and uh, free year that's coming up here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to connect about this all with, you know, a mind where I can kind of see uh, theater coming back now in a way I couldn't maybe a couple of days ago. Right. I'm <laughs> so thinking, I think, yeah, I'm thinking next year is going to be our year. Fingers crossed. I think so. I'm thank ready. You, thank you so much, Preston. Stay safe oh, in Chicago. Oh, thank you very much. Bye.